The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So one of the biggest struggles I think that every person has in life is a sense of purpose. You know, why am I alive? Why am I even here? Uh, why do I live each day? And people struggle with that. You know, what gives meaning to my Mondays and my, my Tuesdays? What is the remedy to the terrifying sense of aimlessness and purposelessness in life that kind of dogs my heels? That same idea led the wisest man who had ever lived on earth up to that point, King Solomon, as he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And he looked around at the world that surrounded him as he looked at his own life, his own achievements. And he looked at uh, all of those achievements and the power and the wealth and the pleasures and all of that. And he said in Ecclesiastes 1-2, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. It's all emptiness. It's all meaningless as he looked at it. Now, we don't want to reach the end of a single day, really, and feel that it was all vanity. It was all meaningless. We don't want to live a single day that's empty of purpose. And praise God, through His grace, we don't need to. Isn't that awesome? Every single day, for us as Christians, is a day just crackling with energy and promise. With good works that are worth doing. I mean eternally worth doing. And the more we meditate on Ephesians 2.10, the more joy that can come to us. And I hope the more energy and zeal and power through the Holy Spirit to live an active life of good works. For it says in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So this idea is very powerful. There are a few verses that I think about every single day. There's a few of them. And I don't do it intentionally. I'm just saying they come in my mind. This is one of them. I think about Ephesians 2.10 every day. I think about it in the morning when I get up. And when I pray and say, Lord, I want to do the good works that you prepared for me to do today. I want to walk in those good works. So, Lord, give me a wise and discerning heart. Show me what they are. I don't want to miss any of them. I think we all have the feeling, and you know, it's a mystery how Ephesians... 210 fits into failure to do the good works, but we know that, you know, we miss opportunities, don't we? We, we, There's some things that we should have done and didn't do. And I don't want that to be my life. I don't want that to be any single day, and I sure don't want that to be the cumulative effect of my whole life, that I I miss the good works. And so I pray for that. Every morning I just say, Lord, help me to walk in that pathway of good works that you have ordained for me. And some of those, those works, there are various types There are some just grand and glorious big good works that you might only do once in your life. And years later you'll be thinking about that good work and what God did in in, in and through that time. Never do it again. And then there are just those day-to-day mundane small good works that you may be tempted to despise and wonder why it's still your job. And why somebody else doesn't do it by now. But that God has set out for you to do. Everything's included for me in Ephesians 2.10. So it could be anything from a word of encouragement. You speak to somebody, you pick up the phone and call them. Or you just take a moment and pray for a situation you know about in the church. 
And no one needs to know about it. You don't need to tell anyone. Like Jesus said in Matthew 6, you go into a room and close the door and pray to your father who's unseen. And, and no one ever knew about it, but you prayed for a, a brother or a sister or a situation. And God sees it and he knows and he hears that. Or it could be you write a check for a ministry or something. Large or small, wouldn't matter. So all kinds of good works. And so God has ordained these good works. And in the language of Isaiah, I think of a pathway of good works in which God says, this is the way, walk in it. Like there are these golden, golden steps that we're going across the river of life and we're just stepping from good work to good work to good work and you can just live, live your life that way. This is the way, walk in it. And so what glorious grace from God to arrange ahead of time a life of good works that have eternal significance. And to be able to join with God the Father in the work that he's doing. As Jesus said, my Father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. And we as sons and daughters of the living God, we can say that. God's at work. He's working in the world. Always working. And I have by faith joined in his work. And that is glorious. There is also a sense in this verse, I think, of craftsmanship. A sense of craftsmanship. We are God's workmanship. And the day is God's workmanship, the both of them. And we're going to talk about that today, but there's a sense of craftsmanship. A little while ago, I came across uh, a website that was talking about these expensive mechanical watches from Switzerland and from Germany. And I came across one that cost $2.6 million for a wrist watch. All right, now if I had $2.6 million, I would not invest it in a wristwatch. Imagine giving Jesus an account of that on Judgment Day. All right, enough said. But at any rate, this German watchmaker, Lange and Son, makes this one watch. It's called the Grand Complication. That's the name of the watch. And it takes a skilled craftsman an entire year to make a single watch. And every part that goes into it is handcrafted. The complexity is staggering. It has different chimes for different parts of the hour. 15 minutes, 30, 45 in the hour, a different chime like it's a grandfather clock on your wristwatch. Imagine being at work and the thing goes off and people are like, what is that? Well, that's my new, my new watch for $2.6 million. And, and the craftsmanship's amazing. It's got a calendar and it's got all of these things. It's all mechanical. It's not computer. It's all gears and sprockets and springs. And I just think about the complexity of, the, and it's about that big, and it, all of that fitting together. Centuries of craftsmanship. But then I thought about this verse today, and we are more complicated than that. Vastly more complicated. And the craftsmanship that has gone into us is staggering. And the craftsmanship, frankly, that's gone into the world around us, the complexity of how we, as sons and daughters of God, interact with other Christians and with non-Christians... To achieve his eternal purposes is just staggering. It's exquisite craftsmanship. So God has been crafting you and shaping you and molding you for this lifetime of good works. And he continues to do it. He's doing it right now for me and for you. And he's getting us ready for these good works. Now, when we come to the issue of good works, again, we need to stop and just be careful of context here, don't we? And it's very important. I chose to divide... Ephesians 2.10 from Ephesians 2.8-9 and from the larger section that Andy just read. And so I think it's good for us to, to look back and understand where we just came from last week. Ephesians 2.8-9. For by, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, 
so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So you really need to see the whole thing together. So we have to go back and remember what we talked about last week. Because it is so pernicious and so, so powerfully, magnetically attractive, this idea of justification by works or being saved by works. And it's just consistently dogging our hearts. Whenever we feel guilty, whenever we know we've sinned, we want to turn to our own works and try to, try to pay for our sins by good works. And that cannot be. So we, it says, it is by grace you have been saved, have been saved. And so we said last week, saved from what? Well, the answer is saved from eternal condemnation under the judgment of God. When it says in Revelation 20 that, that, that we will all be gathered before this great white throne... And the, the court will be seated and the books will be opened and everyone that has ever lived will be gathered and we will all be judged according to what we have done as recorded in the books and by the Lamb's book of life. And if anyone's name was not written in the Lamb's book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire. So we could sum up, the, to answer the question, saved from what? It's from the lake of fire that we deserve because of our sins. How can we be delivered from condemnation? How can we be delivered from hell? And the answer is, it is by grace, through faith, faith in Christ, faith in the blood of Christ, that you have been saved. And this is not of yourselves, he says. It is, it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So we can't emphasize this too much, although I don't want to just go off and preach last week's sermon now, because... Ephesians 2.10 is so glorious and beautiful, but we just need to understand no amount of good works, no amount of the things that we could ever do in service to God can ever be used to pay for our sins. It is through faith, by simple trust in Jesus, by believing the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this faith is not of ourselves. It doesn't originate with us. It comes from outside of us in. It's a gift of God. And it's not by works. Why not? Because Paul already said in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins even while we lived. We were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we could not have delivered ourselves. Our good works cannot deliver us from that bondage, that slavery. We were by nature objects of wrath. But God, because of his richness of his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So that's God. God stepped in. But God intervened. God raised you from the dead. You couldn't have done that. That couldn't be by works. And that's the gospel of free grace. We talked about grace, remember, unmerited favor, and how that's a good starting point. There's an unmerited side, and there's a favor side. How we said that those are infinite understatements. We deserved condemnation and wrath, so it's definitely unmerited. And it's not mere favor, but it's a river of blessings. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus is a river of blessings that has come to us. And will continue to come to us forever. It is by grace. It is God's settled determination to do us infinite good who deserve infinite punishment. That is grace. So that's salvation by grace. And it's by grace we have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. Gift of God. And not by works. But 
though we have not been saved by works, the text most certainly uh, uh, asserts that we have been saved for works, for good works. Not by good works, but for good works. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So, we are clearly told that we're saved for good works. Good works cannot be used to pay for sins, but God, when He saves us by grace, gives us a new nature. He gives us a transformed nature. And from that transformed nature flow a river of good works. Or the nature hasn't been transformed. So, we have been born again by the Holy Spirit of God. We have had the heart of stone removed and we've had the heart of flesh put in. I love what it says in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Oh, isn't that beautiful? You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh now listen to this. This is Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now we come to the complexity of the role of the law in the Christian's life. And the way I put all of this together is the law condemns us and brings us to the cross of Jesus Christ saying we can't save ourselves. And so we despair of self-salvation, despair of salvation by works. We can't keep the law. And so we come and throw ourselves to God uh, at the feet of the cross and we plead for mercy and we get it. And we receive full forgiveness and salvation by grace through faith. But then, having done that, we have received now a new nature, a transformed nature, and the Lord turns us back to the law and says, now by the Spirit, keep this law. It's beautiful. It's the best life you can ever live. I mean, Psalm 119, the whole Psalm, 176 verses, are, oh, how I love your law and how beautiful it is and how majestic and how right it is. So we're dead to the law and its power to condemn us, but now we now live the law, the moral law, the beautiful, virtuous law, the Ten Commandments or the Two Commandments. Take the Two Commandments. Jesus said, all of the law and the prophets hang on this, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second command is like, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So the Holy Spirit then moves us to love God with all that we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves in ways that, that we've never even imagined. Now there's been so much controversy about this over the years, so much un- misunderstanding. Before the Reformation in the 16th century, the medieval Catholic Church had a whole system of religious works. And a terrible confusion about justification. And a false gospel, honestly, that they were preaching. Which was no gospel at all. And the Lord raised up Martin Luther. And Luther tried to earn his own salvation. And by, by works of medieval Catholicism. By, by becoming a monk. By scrubbing floors. And doing penitential prayers. And doing confessional. And all of these works of medieval Catholicism. But all it did is make him realized the inner corruptions of his heart more and more and more and he just felt greater and greater condemnation until at last he finally understood the gospel. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel 
Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is from faith for faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And he finally understood that the righteousness of God there was not the righteousness by which he condemns sinners, but the righteousness by which he saves sinners. It's a context issue. It's good news. It's the gospel. And this righteousness of God is now mine as a gift to save me. He said, then at last, the gates of heaven flew open and I ran through. I understood at last salvation. Well, he spent the next number of years understanding more and more and preaching more and more justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. And he's preaching this and being diligent and emphasizing this again and again because they really needed to hear it. And he preached from Romans 4 about how Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness and he didn't work for it. It was just given as a gift. Preaching all of these things. And they, and they never tired of preaching justification by faith apart from works of the law. Charles Spurgeon said they hit that same nail again and again and again and again with their hammers and so gradually became imbalanced. Imbalanced. On the issue of works. And it's easy to happen. And it shows up when Luther translated the Bible into German and he came to Romans 3.28 which says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. He stuck an extra word in there to help the scripture out a little bit. Hey look, scripture doesn't need help. (laughs) If the Greek word is there, put it in there. If it's not in there, don't put it in there. Just good rule on translation. All you Bible translators. He stuck the word alone in there. We maintain that a man is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. God wasn't hindered when Paul wrote Romans. If he wanted him to say alone, he would have. He didn't. But it got even worse when he came over to the book of James. And James in James chapter 2, from verse 14 on to the end of the chapter, is talking about the role of works and faith. And he's actually asking a different kind of question than Romans 3 and 4 is asking. And that is, what kind of faith justifies you? That's what James is dealing with there. He says... You know, a faith that has no works is a dead faith. He says it's a demon faith. Even the demons believe that there's one God, but they shudder. So James is dealing with what kind of faith? And the faith that produces no works is dead. It's demon faith. It's empty faith. And it will not save you. Well, Luther couldn't handle some of the phraseology that James used. We maintain, you know, the person justified by faith apart from works. But James says that Abraham was justified by works. And he just couldn't figure it out how they're using the word slightly differently, etc. And coming at it from a different angle. And though Luther did teach the, the place of good works in the Christian life. And he understood it properly. He was so upset at James. By the way, they've worked it out. They're friends now. Everything's good. But he, he, he called him Jimmy in the, in the German language and all that. And he said he wrote an epistle of straw. And if he could, he'd have it out. Well, that's a disrespect for the Word of God. And let me tell you something. When you come to two texts from the Scripture that don't seem to harmonize, roll up your sleeves and work and pray. Don't throw one of them out. So, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works. But James says, yes, but what kind of faith saves? The faith that produces a lifetime of good works. Paul would say the same thing right from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, wouldn't he? That's what's going on here. So, Good, good works validate justification. They prove it. They show that it happened. 
that you've been born again by faith, that you're leading a transformed life. It's the issue of fruit. There's going to be fruit in your life. Good works equals fruit in other places. So John the Baptist said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If you've genuinely repented, you will have good works. You'll have fruit. Jesus said, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And then he said, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And again, this is a very hard thing to understand, but we will not be justified by works but we will most certainly be judged by works. It'd be easier to understand if I change the word judge to say assessed or evaluated. Is that a little bit easier to understand? We will not be saved by good works, but we will be evaluated on the basis of our works on Judgment Day. Many passages teach this, but most clearly Romans 2, 6 through 10. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good... Seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Who's that? Christians. That's a description of the Christian life. People who, by persistence in doing good, are seeking for glory, honor, and immortality. To them, he's going to give eternal life. But for those who are self seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. Who's that? Non Christians. Then he says the same thing doubled up. There will be trouble and distress for everyone, every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Romans 2.10. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So, Jesus is a perfect fruit inspector, and he will inspect the fruit of your life. He will have the full record of your words, he'll have the full record of your deeds, and he will evaluate your heart perfectly accurately based on the works. But you will not be forgiven or saved on the basis of your good works. Does that make sense? Just evaluated. Was there saving faith? If so, there's definitely going to be these good works. All right. So that's, I've had to say that. I don't want you drawn back down. It is so, I see it in my own heart. You do something wrong, you got to do something right to make up for it. Don't do that. Go to the cross. (laughs) Go and pray. Ask for forgiveness. And then get up by the power of the Spirit and start living a works-filled Christian life again. All right. Now. God's workmanship is on us and around us concerning these good works. And that's awesome, isn't it? It's really exciting. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So that means that God prepares us for the good works. God crafts us. He shapes us. And without that craftsmanship in our lives, we will not do the good works. That means all of your good works are a display of God's glory. It's to God be the glory for all of the good works. Because he got you ready to do it. Now, his workmanship is done through Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. He makes us a new creation. We're born again. We're made new, created new. Without that, no good works are possible. So, wait a minute, Pastor. Are you saying that non-Christians do no good works? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Non-Christians do zero good works because none of it's done by faith. And anything that's not from faith is sin. Anything not done for the glory of God is sin. So... They do none. We now, as Christians, born again, we now can do good works. We're able to do good works. And that's awesome. 
Now, he then continues to, to work on us, to, to, to craft us for more and more good works. How does he do that? By pouring the Bible into you? Just pouring scripture into you by your daily quiet times, by, by you know, the sermons that you listen to, the books you read, the conferences you go to, the conversations you have, Bible study groups you're part of, just everything you do alone and in groups. He's getting you ready by the ministry of the word of God for good works. And all of this is based on our union with Jesus Christ. Look at the verse again. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So we are created new creations in Christ Jesus. It's all by union with Jesus. We do our good works in union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. Not alone. Clearest passage on this is is John 15. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If anyone remains in me, he will bear much good fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's powerful, isn't it? So as we abide in Jesus by prayer and by by the word and stay close to him and walk with him by the power of the spirit, we'll do good works. We do it in Christ Jesus to his glory. Apart from me, uh, you can do nothing. So God is working on us. Now what's so cool about all this is God works both sides of the equation. He works on us for the good works and he gets the good works ready for us. That is really exciting, isn't it? Clearest example of this in the Bible, I think, is in Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius and Peter. Do you remember that story? So Cornelius was a Gentile, a Roman centurion, who was a God-fearing man, interested, very interested in the Jewish religion, fasting, praying, doing lots of good works, but not converted. And one day an angel appears to him and said, Cornelius, your good works have come up as a memorial offering before me. Send men to Joppa. To find a man named Peter, who's staying at a house of, a house of Simon the Tanner, he will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. So he's not saved by all of his good works, but an angelic messenger said, now go send to get this man Peter. All right, so that's, that's God working that side of the equation. Now the next day, Peter gets up for his quiet time, and he's having his quiet time up in one of those flat, you know, Middle Eastern roofs, and, and he's, uh, he gets hungry. Isn't it funny how God uses little things? And so he's hungry, and he asks for someone to make him a, a sandwich. Well, they don't have sandwiches back then. Anyway, the, to make him lunch or breakfast or whenever it was. And while the meal's being prepared, he has a vision. He falls into a trance and has a vision. You remember? And how there was this large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners. And the sheet contained all kinds of unclean animals and reptiles and nasty things that Jews can't eat. And the voice came from heaven. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter did what Peter does. He said, never, Lord. Four times he says, never, Lord. Look it up. If you want to know what the four times, I'll tell you. That was the last of the four. And that's after the resurrection and the ascension to heaven. Never, Lord. Don't ever say never, Lord. Don't do that. All right? If it's the Lord speaking, say yes, Lord. All right? Never, Lord, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Then the voice comes a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. God is able to declare foods clean that were unclean before. And he's able to make people clean who were unclean before. But he doesn't understand all that. He's just like, what is this? And it happens three times. Then the men from Cornelius appear at the gate. Huh. And the Spirit tells him, get up, Peter, and go with these men. Don't be afraid to go with them. So they travel back and they get to Cornelius' house, which 
Peter, as a law-abiding Jew, would never have entered that home and would never have had a meal with them, wouldn't have had anything to do with them because they're unclean. He understood. Wait a minute, I get it. And as he's preaching the message, the Holy Spirit falls on them and they become brothers and sisters in Christ by faith in the gospel. He said, now I understand that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who love him and believe him and do what's right. Now you learned a lesson there. He wasn't done learning. Read about it in Galatians 2. Another day, we'll talk about it. I already did. Look on the internet. I already preached that sermon. But yeah, he hasn't done, not done learning yet. But God got both sides of the equation ready. Do you see that? He's doing that all the time. He's getting people ready for you and you ready for those people. And I don't just mean in terms of missions or evangelism, everything. It could be another Christian brother or sister who's got a need. And he's getting her ready or him ready for you and you ready for that person. And it's just beautiful. God prepares these works in advance. Andy did a great job of emphasizing that. I mean, God has gone ahead of us. I like, it's redundant, prepared in advance. You know that's redundant, don't you? All preparation is done in advance. Imagine if your friends came and there was no meal ready and you're like wondering what, what's going on and all that. And it's like, maybe, you know, your friends say, you know, eh, I thought we were coming in for dinner. Oh yeah, we're going to prepare it after you leave. <laughs> all right, that doesn't make any sense. All right, preparation happens ahead of time. But Paul strengthens it with some extra phraseology say God has gone ahead of you and gotten everything ready so I, I had this picture in my mind a number of months ago of the you know how at Lowe's you can do these kits like you can go make a bird feeder and you get there and everything's laid out all of the pieces are cut there's this little dish with the right amount of glue and you've got all the tools and this and just put it together do you, do you like it like at Christmas time, especially Christmas Eve? Some assembly required. Isn't that cool? No, it's not cool. Not at three in the morning. Some assembly required, tab A, slot B, and all that. By the way, never put tab A and slot B. That's the problem. Put tab A and slot A, please. All right? As a mechanical engineer, I had to say that. At any rate, some assembly required. These good works, we have something to do with them. God wants us to put it together and do it. And it's awesome. It's very, very exciting. So every day, the day is a masterpiece of good works. The day, as I said, crackling and sparkling and filled with possibility and energy and good things worth doing. So how far in advance does God get these good works ready? Minutes? Hours? Years? Centuries? Yes, all of the above. The complexity is beyond the brain to, to calculate. When it comes to, let's say, the mission field, for example, there are many stories told of traditions, tribal stories passed down from generation to generation that got that tribe ready to hear the missionaries to come. Don Richardson tells the story in Peace Child of the Sawi people in Irian Jaya who had a tradition of a peace child where warring, warring tribes would exchange son of the chief and as long as that child was alive, there could be reconciliation, peace between the tribes. He used it as what he called a redemptive analogy, a way to explain the gospel. They'd been doing that for time immemorial. They didn't know when they started that. That was worked in providentially in that tribe. I heard another story once of another tribe in a jungle area and they had, had passed down a prophecy by word of mouth of a man with yellow hair was coming with leaves with some kind of writing on it that would come and tell them the way to know the Most High God. Is there any chance that missionary is going to be bald or redheaded? Nope. <laughs> yellow hair. Imagine like the mission agency, they don't know about the prophecy, they know nothing, 
And, and they're like, yeah, I like this guy. You know, he's got, you know, yellow hair. <laughs> That's a requirement for the job. But God got that tribe ready to hear the gospel in advance, even, I don't know, centuries in advance. Or it could be just an individual encounter that God prepares. When we were missionaries in Japan, I had the experience of going, every Saturday I would go to Takamatsu, and I would take a train from Tokushima to Takamatsu and uh, teach uh, the Bible in English there, and then I would take the train back. And one thing I noticed on that train ride is that uh, Japanese people didn't like sitting next to me. And listen, I was looking after my hygiene. I was doing what I needed to do, whatever was necessary, but it just, I frequently had an empty seat next to me. The train could be crowded. So after a while, I kind of liked it. I actually used, used it, just put my books there. I had a little more space, and it was good. But, you know, <laughs> until one day, a young man came, college age, and asked if he could sit next to me, Japanese man. I, was, I said, sure. So I moved my books, and he sat down, and we got in a conversation. Turned out his mother is a Christian, but he's not a Christian, not yet. And he had questions about Christianity. I mean, he didn't sit down to talk about Christ. He just sat down. But we got into an incredible conversation about an hour-long train ride. And it led to many other Bible studies, and he eventually came to faith in Christ. And he said after that happened, he said, I think it was God's work in my life that I sat next to you on the train. I'm usually very shy, and I don't talk to strangers. And so God was working in him and in me to get us ready for that encounter. And it's a pathway of good works. It says, literally, that we should walk in them. The NIV just simply says, for us to do. I like walk in better. So I, I like quote the NIV until I get to the end of that verse and say that we should walk in them. Is that okay? Anyway, that's what I do. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance, that we should walk in them. So again, I get this, this picture of like tunnel vision, and like this is the road ahead of me. And I need to do these good works. This is how I'm going to make my way through my life. And Monday's works are not Tuesday's works, and Tuesday's works are not Wednesday's works. And I can never go backward and do yesterday's works. And I honestly can't go ahead and do tomorrow's works. I've got today's works to do today. And so we need to redeem the time, don't we? We'll get to that in Ephesians 5, but we need to make the most of every day. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. So what kind of good works? Well, he doesn't say what kind, but I'm going to break them into two categories. Here in our church, we talk about the internal journey and the external journey. Internal journey is sanctification or growth in Christ-likeness. Growth in holiness. Sanctification, good works. And then external journey are works you do in service to other people. You know, you could say external to what? Either external to me could be both Christians and non-Christians, or external to the church is non-Christians as we're reaching out. Okay, so two categories that I'm commending to you, sanctification and service. Those are two main categories of good works that God wants you to do, that you should walk in. Or another way to uh, put it would be works of growing and works of going. So if you like alliteration, I've given you two versions of alliteration. Sanctification and service, if you like the letter S. Growing and going, if you like the letter G. And you like the rhyme. But the point is that you would be growing in grace, the knowledge of Christ internally, and going out to serve other people in whatever way God has. Both are needed. Now, concerning the internal works, you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. How do you do that? Daily quiet times. Get up and have a time in God's word every day. And have a time in prayer every day. Also, you're to grow by being a covenant member of a good local church and receiving the benefits of the body of Christ as they pour into you. As people hold you accountable. As people speak into your life and you do the same. 
So good works of growing that will feed your soul. You have to, by the Spirit, Romans 8, 13, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's a work you have to do. If you're tempted in some area of lust or weakness or sin, you have to work and put that sin to death. That's something you do by the power of the Holy Spirit. So those are works of sanctification. And then there are works of service. So everyday life, just deeds you do with your hands, with your mouth, with your feet, things you do to serve others. And they could be menial and mundane. It could be just everyday stuff you do around the house. It could be like emptying the dishwasher or loading the dishwasher. It could be vacuuming. It could be chores. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Do it, do even the most menial things. You, those are some of the good works that you do. And we don't neglect them. But we also do good works toward other Christians by means of our spiritual gifts. And so we're going to get to that later. I'm not going to say much about spiritual gifts now, but Ephesians 4 is all about it. But there it says in Ephesians 4 that to each one of us, grace has been apportioned as, as Christ measured it out. That Christ has given you, each of you, a spiritual gift package by which you can serve other brothers and sisters in Christ and advance the gospel. And so you need to know what your spiritual gifts are and do your spiritual gift ministry. And there are other things that don't have anything to do directly with spiritual gifts, but just ministries of, of care and compassion for other Christians, ministries of mercy, going to visit people in the hospital, making a meal for a, a couple that's just had a baby. Or has a medical need. Uh, there might be works of financial generosity. Where you see a financial need and you meet it financially. Uh, home fellowship starts tonight. The works of just getting the house ready and hosting a home fellowship. Are good works that God's prepared in advance for you to walk in. Beautiful works that bless others. Works of hospitality. But then there's um, works of evangelism and missions. Reaching out to lost people. And that's something I just have a heart for in our church. That's the future of our church, that we would grow and flourish more than ever before in works of outreach, of evangelism, external journey ministry. I, I am yearning for us to help, like the elders, to help people become better evangelists in their world. It's staggering to me, all the different mission fields you folks are going to go scatter to this week. All the workplaces and schools and neighborhoods and malls and shopping areas and all these things you're going to go throughout this week. And it is up to us to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ can be built up, it says in Ephesians. Get you ready for that. So one of the things that I would commend to you is the idea in terms of evangelism. Say, Lord, I want to be a witness. Would you please today give me someone to talk to? Just give me someone to talk to. And Lord, make me alert to it. I pray for that. And I want to be faithful. I'm willing to be bold. But I don't need to even share the gospel. I just want to talk to somebody. Knowing that my desire is to be evangelistic. But I want to just be more social, more outgoing and connect with somebody. Connect that also, if you would, with a challenge I'd like to give to each member of our church. That a year from now, somewhere between now and a year from now, you will develop a list of five people that are lost, you know them to be lost, by name that you're praying for, for them to come to Christ. I'm not saying you should evangelize them. I'm kind of saying that, we'll get to that another time. 
But I'm just saying that you're praying for them now. That's all. You're just praying for those five names. Now, if you say, I don't have five names, then just go get them. Go to the same convenience store every week until you know the name of the person who's there on Monday evenings. Find out what his name is or her name is. Ask if there's some way you could pray for him. They'll usually tell you something. Even if they shut you down, you can still get their name. And just, they're one of your people. And then just until you've got five. All of us can do this. And then home fellowships, I urge you to just hold each other accountable. Who are you five? Well, I've got two. Great, praise God. Be positive. No guilt. Just positive. Great. Who are you two? I'll pray for you for those two. Something we're going to do in our home fellowship this year. And it's something I, I want to urge you to do. We are, we are God's workmanship created for evangelistic good works which God has prepared in advance for us to walk in at some point as you're pleading with God to send some missionary or evangelist to this person it might be you (laughs) and God might just work that on your heart so assess yourself as you listen to this sermon assess yourself it says in first Timothy 6 18 They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Talking about the rich there, but I think it's true of everyone. Are you rich in good works? That's what I'm asking you. Just look at your life. Are you rich in good works? Do you feel a sense of excitement about God crafting you to do a specific array of good works today and in your lifetime? Do you look at every day as unique in terms of God going ahead of you, preparing good works for you to do are you doing the daily good works of internal holiness daily quiet time bible intake prayer putting sin to death by the spirit is that happening for you are you feeding on god's word and are you using your spiritual gifts do you have a spiritual gift ministry here at fbc are you doing a pattern of good works if not just find out say lord i want to give me a ministry here and then evangelistically reaching out as i've shared close with me in prayer Father, this is such good news. It's such a blessing to know that you have eternally significant good works for us to do. That we're not justified by works. We're no more children of God because we do the good works than than before we did them. We're no less if we should miss some and we we feel terrible and we ask forgiveness for being selfish or cowardly and not doing the good works. But Lord, we're secure. We're children of God. But Lord, we want to please you and we want to do these good works. Lord, open our eyes to them and help us by the Spirit to walk in those good works. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.